Hi. So last night, as I was finishing my slides at 11.30 p.m. after the dinner, <laughs> I tweeted, why is literally every possible font choice for a slides presentation embarrassing? And my friend replied that somebody smart once told me to just use Comic Sans and it will always make your presentation a banger. So this morning I sent my updated presentation, so this is what we're going to work with today. So I'm here to talk about the process of putting myself on screen, and it's something that I feel like I've been thinking about and struggling with my whole life. And a lot of times, whenever I, whenever I approach someone thinking about how I'm going to present myself or how I should be in a certain high-stress situation, people give me this kind of advice. They're like, just be yourself. And, you know, before I gave this presentation, people would give me that kind of advice, like, just be yourself. So last night I'm doing the slides and I'm thinking, okay, well, what, what typeface is me? What typeface is going to represent myself? And I found it so stressful. And in every kind of those situations, I find it so stressful to think about myself. What does that mean? And this kind of advice has always haunted me whenever it's been given to me because I've always felt like I didn't understand how to tap into what I believed growing up to be my true innate self that I was supposed to have access to. And my entire life, my sense of self has really been mediated by a computer screen. I have memories of spending hours in front of the photo booth on the Mac in my kitchen taking these kind of photos. And what I loved about the way that I could appear on screen that was manipulated by software is I could, I could adjust my sense of self and I could perform reality in a way that was different than I had the tools to do when I was offline. And the sense of performance was very natural to me because I grew up as a competitive dancer and I would spend hours in the studio in front of these big mirrors just staring at myself, training my body to be able to perform a certain way and thinking really intensely about how I was going to come off on stage to an audience. And this is something that John Berger talks about in his book, Ways of Seeing, um, a well-known book in art history. Um, and he talks about this concept um, where a woman must continually watch herself. She is almost continually accompanied by an image of herself. And so not only was I thinking about all of those, all of these feelings of performance growing up as a dancer and growing up putting myself online on a computer, but at the same time, the way that I've been conditioned to perform because of the gender constructs in society, I also had a tendency to feel like I was constantly trying to see myself from a third person point of view. And this is something that I was watching the D'Amelio show, which was about TikTok star Charlie D'Amelio and her family. Um, and in it, one of her friends says to the camera that it's this third person that's not existed in any other generation. It's in your head all the time. And I'm so fascinated by thinking about what that feeling that I'm always trying to see myself from a third person point of view. And so growing up, once I got on social media and I started posting on Instagram, these are my Instagrams from the past 10 years, I remember feeling so guilty because the advice that I was always given was, oh, just be yourself, be your true self online. That's, what, that's how people should be. And I always had the sense, no matter what I posted, that I was performing in some way. And I linked that in my mind to feeling like I was being fake in some way or being inauthentic. And this concept of authenticity is something that has haunted me for as long as I can remember when I've been posting online. And it's something that we tend to measure people against whenever we talk about 
who they are in terms of their internet persona. And so if someone's being authentic and is being real online, we think, oh, that's good. They're being cool and genuine. And if someone's being, we feel someone's being inauthentic, it's because we feel like they're being fake, because we feel like they're performing in some way. And so I'm an artist and I come from a computer science background and most of my work is software based. And so I started to think about what's a way that I can build something that will allow me to represent myself in a way that I feel like I can't online, in a way that feels really authentic and real. And I thought, okay, well, I spend realistically the majority of my day sitting in front of my computer screen. And so I decided to create a Chrome extension called Glanceback, which once a day at random, when I open a new tab, it takes a photo of me really fast. I don't have time to look cute or like fix my hair. And it says, what are you thinking about? And I type in my response. And what happens over time is I start to collect this archive of photos of me just no expression, looking at my screen, and I type in whatever I'm thinking about in that moment. And I, I created this because I wanted to, I feel like when I'm on my computer, I'm in this kind of hypnotic trance, and I wanted this to pull me out of that, confront me with myself and how I looked in that moment, and then also create this archive over time of images of myself that I otherwise never would have taken. And I thought, okay, maybe this will be the representation of my real self. And I released this publicly as a browser extension that anyone can download. And now there's um, thousands of people who use it around the world. And I can't see their photos that it takes, but sometimes they'll share on social media and they'll tag me. And so now all of these people have this collection of photos of themselves staring at their computer. And this collection of photos has become really meaningful to me because it represents a side of myself that I'm not, I'm not putting on the internet, but they're these small personal moments that I share with my computer. And I've been using it for almost three years. I have almost a thousand photos. And every time I look back at these tiny moments where I was making a dinner reservation or I was thinking about something I was searching online, I can remember that moment now because I have it. But otherwise, I would never have captured that moment. And so recently I've been thinking about this concept of the presentation of self in everyday life, which was also mentioned a little bit earlier, but I've been, when I made this browser extension, had so many people use it, I thought, okay, is this, is this what our real selves look like? Um, and Irving Goffman, who published the book, The Presentation of Self in Everyday Life in 1956, so well before computer, uh, the internet was something people were presenting on, says that the self then as a performed character is a dramatic effect arising diffusely from the scene that is presented. So really what he's arguing, he has a dramaturgical theory that every social situation that we're in, we're, we're required to perform in some way. And this was actually really freeing for me to realize because I've had this feeling that in all these situations I'm performing all the time and I used to feel a lot of guilt about it because I, I, I felt like I should just be myself and it shouldn't feel like that. But reading this helped me understand that we're different in different contexts. And so when I think about the presentation of self now online, I think about how complicated it is because usually in physical space, I'm very different with my close friends when we're having a conversation or my potential employers or on the stage right now, I'm very different than I would be in another situation. But what happens online is all of these people in my life that I am different with in different situations, they, they all follow you 
online. And so you're rec- you, you have this context collapse, and Jenny O'Dell talks about this in her book, How to Do Nothing, how you have to kind of become this singular identity. You don't have the opportunity on your public social media profile to put out the self that you, that you put out in each different situation that varies a lot. And so I often describe my relationship with the internet as one of love-hate, and that's the title of this piece that I made earlier this year. Um, this, video, uh, this video on the right is actually playing on the phone that sits in this punching bag. Uh, and I, I feel like my relationship with the internet is one of love-hate because I love posting online and sharing things and learning, but at the same time, I've always felt like I kind of hate myself for loving it, and I felt a lot of guilt around enjoying posting online. Yeah, <laughs> and so I, I then started to think this past year, where did this sense of performance really come from? And how is my identity being constantly mediated by the media that I'm consuming? And I thought back to when I was younger, pre-internet days for me, and I used to read Seventeen magazine and these kinds of teen magazines. I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania, and these were my access to culture. And I remember reading these like, like they were very prescriptive instructions, like this is how you should be, this is how you should look, this is how you should act. And the the tone of the headlines on all of these have a very specific energy to them too. They're very demanding. They say, okay, this is how you should be in certain situations. And so for my latest body of work, I've been really interested in exploring that kind of persuasive tone in language that tells people how they should identify themselves. And so this is the visual I made for my solo exhibition earlier this year. Um, based off of Seventeen magazine, and I was interested in mimicking that tone. Um, so you can see one of the headlines says, the trick to intersecting art and technology. He'll love this move. <laughs> um, and I, I had a lot of fun writing all these different headlines, and earlier this summer, I also had the opportunity to do the show in Tokyo, and so I worked with a translator, and I was looking at old Japanese Seventeen magazines, and she was telling me how, you know, they say a lot of the same things, and they kind of have a lot of the similar tone, too. This is how you should look. This is how you should act. And so when I think about this concept of being yourself, it's so complicated to try to take that advice in a world where now not only we, have, we don't just have these kind of print media that's telling us how we should be, but we're constantly online. And I'm constantly consuming content on social media that's instructing me about who, how I should live my life. And so when I started thinking about what was the more contemporary example of this uh, language in Seventeen magazine, I became extremely fixated on these kinds of Instagram graphics. Uh, and um, maybe you've seen these before. They kind of have this very feminine look to them, and they often touch on wellness or self-care or confidence. Um, and they're meant to operate on Instagram in a way that encourages you to kind of like, share, comment, repost on your story and say, like, this is what I believe. So my primary medium is code. I decided it would be really fun to make a generative system that outputs graphics in this style with this tone, but walks the line between feeling sometimes sounding sometimes totally normal, like you might see it on Instagram today, all the way to sounding sometimes totally absurd. And so I built this program called Fake It Till You Make It. And I'll let you see some of the things that it outputs. <laughs> um, but I... <laughs> 
Yeah. So uh, as I was building this system, I used a kind of collage system with the language where I didn't write anything myself. I spent a lot of time collecting these graphics on Instagram that were actual graphics. And so if I saw one that said, believe in yourself, I would put believe in my verb list and then have verb in yourself as one of my sentence structures. And I, that just really scaled. So now it's remixing all of the language that's found in these kinds of posts to create output, not only with the text, but also with the sort of sugar cookie aesthetics that it's wrapped in to play on what these uh, media objects are actually doing on Instagram. And there's about 80 billion possible phrases. So when it's generating live each one that you see, it's extremely unlikely you'll ever see the same one again. And so not all, I recently released this project um, about a week ago um, and on this platform called Artblocks, but I also wanted these objects to operate where in their originated form on Instagram. And so I have an Instagram account called fake it till you make it, LOL. And um, I post a couple of these every day and it's been really interesting to see these, which often sound somewhat off and sometimes sound kind of normal, but it's been really fascinating to see them sort of circulate within the culture of these Instagram graphics. But really what I found was most surprising working on this project because I started it feeling kind of cynical and I was like, oh, like these just tell you how to live your life. You're not gonna really get meaning out of these types of graphics. And I've now looked at thousands of these kinds of graphics. And honestly, sometimes like, you know, some of these, I'm like, that's deep. Like that's honestly meaningful. And so I started thinking, why did I feel so cynical about these before? And I realized it was because I am really hung up again on this concept of authenticity because I felt like by, you know, posting them on Instagram, they're almost these like pseudo religious media objects, like little prayers where you kind of say like what you believe. And I realized that I felt frustrated with them because I had a sense that they weren't representing how you, the, the whatever tr the true feeling is of what you believe. But the longer that I've been working with these kinds of concepts and thinking about this kind of media, I've realized, and Toby Shoren points this out in his essay, After Authenticity, that there's a deep entitlement to the idea of an authentic self. And really, our idea of ourselves is constantly being mediated by an audience and by the, the type of media that we consume. And I used to feel a lot of guilt about that. But what I've realized spending so much time with these ideas is that that's just, and going back to Goffman, that's really just what forming a self is. And so I've really shifted my mindset from feeling so much guilt around putting myself on screen to really approaching any time that I am posting something online, I'm putting something on the internet, thinking of it as a performance of self, where I'm performing myself on screen, that everything I'm posting is contributing to this kind of distributed avatar that exists online. And Recently this summer, I had the chance to uh, have a post and intervene on the actual Instagram Instagram account, which was very exciting for me. Um, and I was very specific about what I wanted them to post. Uh, and in the caption of the this photo, uh, I say, on Instagram, everyone's performing with their personal profile. That's not to say what happens here isn't meaningful or powerful or real, but I mean that we're always posting with an audience in mind. I make artwork about that experience because the experience of performing myself on the internet has always felt both beautiful and absurd. I dream that people find my work and use it as a tool to contemplate their own relationship to the way that they present themselves online. 
So I'll leave you with some generated words from my computer. <laughs> You're online and you deserve a right life. Thank you. <laughs> oh, yeah. Thank you. Yay. <laughs> okay, we have a little bit of a very exciting exercise. We have three minutes until we end here and you will have to go to lunch, okay? So there are three minutes left for an audience Q&A. <laughs> I would love for that questions to come from one of you, potentially two of you. We have a kind human over here who is with a microphone, so if any of you want to raise a question, either to any of these three speakers or to them as a whole, please put up your hand. Cool, here we have the first question. So say your name and then where you come from and then a question. Yes, hello, my name is uh, Mate and I came from IKEA Com Marketing and Communications, and I have a question to Matt, uh, uh, and all of the presentations were very meaningful to me, but the, my question to you, Matt, is that if uh, uh, people uh, make content on, on, on Twitter themselves and, and communicate their view, then how do you see the difference between following someone on Twitter and subscribing to a feed, or following someone on YouTube or, or any social media? How do you see the difference between uh, why is it more meaningful to, uh, to subscribe I, to feed? I was hoping you were going to ask me what I had for dessert. Or <laughs> like that. Um, I think I would really like, I would like to hear about that difference in terms of like performance, I think, because there is, there is something very different when you kind of follow someone that's very visible to everyone else. And I think that that changes the relationship between the person and the audience. And you kind of start playing to the crowd a bit. Um, there's a really interesting study about putting people with really, really different views together on Zoom and letting them talk it out. And it turns out that after kind of a few minutes, people moderate their views. They come to respect each other, unless you put them in front of an audience, <laughs> in which case they remain polarized. When you follow someone on Twitter, that's visible. I don't think that's conducive to like building empathy or understanding each other or forming new views. When you subscribe to someone, that's not visible. I think that maybe builds more understanding. But that's kind of one perspective. Cool. Thank you for the question. Do any of you want to add to it? No? No. Thank you. <laughs>